Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In the second part of The Ethics of Ambiguity, where Simone de Beauvoir is examining a number of different types or modes of inauthenticity on the part of human beings in relation to their freedom, the last type that she discusses is the passionate person. And she frames this at first by saying that this is the antithesis of the adventurer, but also has some things in common, but is different from the serious person. So we we should look at that very briefly because the ways in which she's going to discuss this might seem a bit paradoxical. So she tells us that in the passionate person, subjectivity fails to fulfill itself. And that is different than the adventurer because in the adventurer, she says it is the content which does not succeed in being genuinely fulfilled. What is the content? The thing that the adventurer is striving after. Their subjectivity is being fulfilled because they want to be able to move from thing to thing and have all sorts of adventures by, you know, way of living out their freedom. In the passionate person, there's something involved in the subjectivity itself that is not being adequately fulfilled. Although she says that they both do, in fact, have a sketch of the synthesis of freedom and its content, right? Now, in the serious person, they set up an object as absolute, and that is being done with the passionate person. But there's a difference here. In the serious person, the object is being granted this absolute, this unconditioned status. It is more important than everything else. For the passionate person, it's precisely because of the passionate person's subjective relationship to this thing that gives the thing that transcendent value. So a prime example of this is in love. Now she's going to talk about love in a little bit of a different way towards the end of this section, but the lover, the, the one who says, oh, only in my eyes does the beloved attain the wonderful status that he or she has. You know, I'm the one who reveals them as the beautiful person, the, the wonderful thinker, all this potential that they have. So I'm really the one who is the key. I'm the one who's the revealer of this. Nobody else can see in you what I see in you. And so there's a certain duplicity involved, right? The object is being set up as this absolute, but it's an absolute for me. And I'm the one who makes it absolute. So in a certain sense, I'm the absolute and I'm using the other, you know, as sort of like almost a ballast to push off against. And so she goes on and she says, there are transitions between the serious and passion. A goal which was first willed in the name of the serious can become the object of a passion. Inversely, a passionate attachment can wither into a serious relationship, but real passion asserts the subjectivity of its involvement. In amorous passion, particularly, one does not want the beloved being to be admired objectively. You don't want other people saying, oh yeah, this person is really hot. This person is really smart. This person is really funny. You want them to be be funny for you, that you're the one who can reveal what's so great about them. Same thing with other things. This dish is so sublime because I'm the one who eats it. I'm the hipster who has discovered this group. I mean, we can see the hipster as the passionate person in a certain respect as well. So 
A little bit further, she says, this is the genuine thing offered by all passion, revealing the worth, revealing the value of the thing. The moment of subjectivity therein vividly asserts itself in a movement towards the object. It's only when the passion has been degraded that it ceases to choose itself. As long as it remains alive, it does so because subjectivity is animating it. And here she talks about a couple different modes of affectivity of passion. Pride. I'm so great that I can realize how wonderful this thing is, right? Or how much it needs to be protected. Yeah, the other people can't. I can. Complacency. That's another possible way of doing it. Obstinacy, right? Desire, excitement, she talks about, although these are a little bit different. She says it helps to populate the world with desirable objects with exciting meanings. But in the passions, she says, which we call maniacal to distinguish them from generous passions, freedom does not find its genuine form. Freedom does not find its genuine form in this kind of maniacal as opposed to generous passion. Why? Because the attempt is to get possession and thereby to attain being. And so, you know, she gives some examples here. He causes rare treasures to appear in the world, but he also depopulates it. Nothing exists outside of his stubborn product. Nothing can induce him to modify his choices. There's the obstinacy, right? Having involved his whole life with an external object, which can continually escape him, he tragically feels his dependence. Even if it does not definitely disappear, the object never gives itself. They're never entirely fulfilled. They're constantly seeking. They're constantly praising. They're constantly protecting. And so they, they never attain the true satisfaction. And seeking this possession leads to isolation from others. Why? Well, because they don't share that. She says, that's why, although the passionate person inspires a certain admiration, they also inspire a kind of horror. You can admire the pride of a subjectivity which chooses its end without bending itself to any foreign law and the precious brilliance of the object revealed by the force of this. But you have to consider the solitude into which this subjectivity encloses itself as injurious, withdrawing into an unusual region of the world, seeking not to communicate with other humans. This freedom is realized only as a separation. Any conversation, any relationship with a passionate person is impossible. So she says, in the eyes of those who desire a communion of freedom, he therefore appears as a stranger, an obstacle. He's on the way to tyranny, she says. And this is where we get to this imposition of of the passion upon others. They, in one respect, they withdraw from others into the seeking, the protecting of their passionate object. In the other case, they might impose this passionate object or the pursuit of it on others, not saying that everybody should pursue this object, but everyone should cooperate in their pursuit of this object. And she talks about a partial nihilism here. She says, only the object of his passion appears real and full to him. All the rest are insignificant. Why not betray, kill, grow violent? It's never nothing one destroys. So the entire universe, she says, can be perceived in a, as an ensemble, a totality of means and obstacles to that object of passion that the person is investing with all of this value. So she goes on and she says, not intending his freedom for other people, the passionate person does not recognize them as freedoms. He will not hesitate to treat them as things, as mere objects to get this other object. 
He doesn't care about what they're passionate about, except insofar as it can coincide with his own quest for the passionate thing. And this makes them, you know, kind of dangerous. Certainly going to treat other people as less than people. And she goes on and says this can take the form of fanaticism when the passionate thing is a maybe a state of the world or of society. She says the values invented by certain men in a passion of hatred, fear, or faith are thought and willed by others as given realities, but there's no serious fanaticism which does not have a passional base. All adhesion to the serious world is brought about by repressed tendencies and complexes. So maniacal passion represents a damnation for the one who chooses it. And for others, it is one of the forms of separation which disunites freedoms, which puts us at odds with each other as well. It leads to struggle and oppression. Now, she does also talk about a possible conversion from this. This is where it gets very interesting. There could be a way of getting out of this even with the passionate attachment to something. So she gives the example of Mademoiselle de Lepinas, who is grieving and she passes from that to the assumption of the grief. The lover describes her tears and her tortures. She asserts she loves this unhappiness. It is a source of delight for her. She likes the other to appear as another through their separation, granting freedom to the other person, granting individuality, personhood to the other. And it doesn't even always have to be personhood to the other. It could be, she's got a great example here of loving a land. If a, if a person prefers the land they have discovered to the possession of the land, insofar as they appear to, to that person as possibilities open to other people, they're able to say something like, I want this to be, this is so valuable. It's so valuable that I don't have to possess it. It doesn't have to just be mine. And that's a generosity. That's a certain kind of love which renounces possession. Very different than the amorous passion that she was talking about earlier. This is a possibility of detaching oneself from what one has invested oneself in. And she says that you cannot love a pure thing in its independence and its separation for the thing does not have positive independence. It means not just loving the thing, but loving others, loving other human beings. So she goes on and she says, passion is converted to genuine freedom if one destines one's existence to other existences through the being, whether thing or, or man, at which he aims without hoping to entrap it in the destiny of the in itself, without reducing it merely to an object to be dominated. So the passionate person is treating their passion, their passionately loved object, desired object, as something to, to control, to, to dominate. One can go beyond that and thereby relinquish it into a world of others and their freedom. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.